We don't want... Actually, my pay should be increased because in Chuck's absence, I've been carrying the load. Isn't that true? Speaking of Chuck, it's possible... Oh, yeah, (laughs) Dave. Poor Dave. It's possible Chuck will be here uh, this next Sunday. That's his plan. He goes Thursday for a hard cast to replace the soft one, which means the swelling on his leg is going down sufficiently that they think they could put a more permanent cast on. And he needs that because he's vulnerable with the soft cast to re-injuring his leg, which you don't want to happen. I went to see him uh, yesterday, and Maureen uh, had just come home. She had done some shopping, and so she let me in. And he had just taken a shower, uh, nobody there to supervise. And so she was mad. It was kind of pretty cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, I just sat there and enjoyed to watch the un- unfolding of this. So I came to the conclusion, guys, uh, in general, are stupid. I mean, there's just no avoiding that deal. They're the, the guy who goes through all this stuff and he's taking a shower. Anyway, he's bored and he wants to come back, which is hard for me, David, to understand. I mean, if... If I was frail, as he is, um, I would milk it for all it's worth. You know what I mean? Watch TV, eat bluebell ice cream, and pray once in a while, maybe. Anyway, so he's planning on coming back next week. He's on a walker. Can't put weight on the foot just yet, but he can get around uh, with it elevated. And so we're gonna, we'll set up kind of a stool with a back or something with him uh, for him next week. And so... That's, that's the plan. We'll see what happens. He goes to see the doctor Thursday, so we'll, we'll see. But anyway, that's the plan. So I don't know how to look at it. I guess it's good news. And on the other hand, heesh, the ogre is returning. Heesh. I kind of like not having parental supervision, you know, adult supervision. So now, oh, brother, I'm going to have to show up for work and everything. So, uh, you know, we went through Hebrews 9 last week, but I want to return to it. Just look at one verse today. You'll see why it's laden with good, insightful things. Let me preface the subject by telling you a little bit of a funny story. Uh, a man goes to see his doctor for an exam, and the doctor says to him, well, I'm sorry, but I have bad news and worse news to tell you. And so the man said, well, okay. Let's have it. And the doctor said, well, the bad news is you only have 24 hours to live. And the man said, I cannot imagine what could possibly worse, be worse than that. And the doctor said, well, I forgot to tell you yesterday. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's not, that's some worse news. Uh, so the subject today, the very pleasant subject, is death. Um, it's an unavoidable human reality, part of the human condition, not exactly a fun topic, but it's inevitable that we all will face it, so we're going to talk about it, particularly since the thought uh, is um, addressed by the Bible in Hebrews 9.27, which I just skirted over last week and want to camp out on a little bit today. Here's what it says. It is appointed, this is just part A of the verse, it is appointed for 
uh, men to die once. Of course, by men, that's generic. That means men and women. It's appointed for people to die once. On the other hand, there are some biblical exceptions to this. For instance, you know of Enoch and Elijah. They were, the scriptures say, taken by God. They did not have the experience of death. Also, some people in the Bible uh, were raised from the dead, which means they actually died twice. (laughs) They didn't die once. And then there are Christians who will be alive at the rapture. We may be those who will not experience death at all. So though there are exceptions to this, uh, the general rule is the one clearly expressed here in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once. Now, this is a fearful and distasteful subject to many. In fact, you perhaps have heard of the famous publisher William Randolph Hearst. You know about the Hearst Mansion out there in California? Remember Patty Hearst? All the crazy stuff that... Anyway, William... Randolph Hearst was a billionaire in his day. He had a lot of idiosyncratic thoughts and fears, one of which was death. In fact, the very subject of death and dying was prohibited. It was a taboo subject if you came to visit him. And so he's one of many who don't even want to talk about it. And yet refusing to talk about death doesn't make it go away. It remains an irreversible part of the human condition, which leads to the question, how did it come about? How did it come to be part of the human condition? Well, if you believe in the Bible, the answer, it it need not be uh, subject to complicated philosophical considerations. Here's what the Bible really says. It's pretty easy. It's from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what it says. The consequence or implications, the, the ramifications of human sin is, is death. And so the reason why we're all subject to death is that we're all subject to sin. There it is, case closed. In fact, this human inclination to sin was very apparent in the life of the first of us, the first man. His name was Adam, as you know, And so we read in Romans 5.12 this, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And so there is the rather clear and simple explanation of how sin, sin came to be part of the human condition. Now, if death is such a serious consequence of sin, you would think that the giver of life, God, would have given us some sort of warning about all this to begin with. Well, he did. And so way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, we read, the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely And now in Genesis 2, verse 17, we read this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of it you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So God, right at the outset, gave first man and woman a clear notion of what the consequence of their sin would be. Uh, In the day that you sin, you will surely die. Now, to demonstrate that God keeps his word, Genesis chapter 5 gives us a haunting record of how God, uh, in fact, kept his word and carried out the consequence of sin. So I'll read to you just a smattering of some verses and ask for your participation. I'll tell you when. So here's Genesis 5 verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he, what do you think comes next? Okay, so that's going to be your part. I'll say, and he, and you say, okay, verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he, yep. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he, so verse 14, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he, Verse 17, so all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he, verse 20, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he, verse 27, so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he, and verse 31, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he. So there it is. God keeps his word. I mean, anytime you drive by a cemetery or um, go to pay your respects to a deceased person at a funeral, you're seeing verification of what God warned us about way back in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you sin, you will die. Now, that's a harsh reality so distasteful that many have made attempts to come up with alternatives uh, to death. And so there have been the advancement of ideologies and philosophies that provide alternative perspectives on the inevitability of death. And I'm going to share with you three of those major ones. But first, I want to simply tell you what is simply and clearly and concisely uh, told us in Hebrews 9.27. Here it is, which lays to rest, really, any possibility of any alternative to death. And here's what it says once again. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That, in 25 words or less, is what the Bible says about death, dying, and what follows. But because it's harsh and distasteful, a number of people have come up with alternatives. So here's one of the principal alternative perspectives. It's called reincarnation and I don't know what the world's population is. Does anyone know? Is it like 7.5 billion or something? Does that sound about right? I do know that 1.5 billion of the world's inhabitants hold to reincarnation, which simply says that when you die upon death, your soul or spirit begins a new life and a new body, and it may be human or animal, And all that is a function of the way you have lived your previous life. 
And so you have this cycle, this endless succession of living and then dying, living in another form and dying, living in another form and dying and again. Some of the world's major religions have reincarnation built in as a central tenet. So, for instance, Hinduism, a major world religion, really, really has reincarnation as one of its core values. Uh, Buddhists, uh, Buddhism, most Buddhists believe to believe in reincarnation. Also, Sikhs, S-I-K-H-S, mo- most of those believe in reincarnation. And the notion is picking up steam in here uh, in good old U.S. of A. It's been popularized by ones like Shirley MacLaine. You know about Shirley MacLaine? Great actress and a lady who is just in darkness and as a result doesn't know what she's saying. Well, she wrote a book, bestseller, called Out on a Limb, in which she said reincarnation is like show business. You just keep on doing it until you get it right. That's the idea of reincarnation. You don't worry about judgment, death. There is no death. There is no judgment. You will enter into another life form of a higher level, and you know you keep going until you're actually perfected. You know what's most disheartening? Uh, there are a number of those calling themselves Christians who are embracing reincarnation. Now, I say calling themselves Christians because you know there's a difference between being one and simply calling yourself one, right? So anytime they do a poll, they survey so-called Christians who weigh in on different subjects. But I'm not sure they're really Christian. You don't have to be complicated about this. A Christian is someone who's recognized his or her sin problem and that Jesus is the solution. And that man or woman has accepted what Jesus has done in response to our sin. When that happens, Jesus takes up his abode in that person's life, and you see evidence of it in a changed life. Not a perfect life, but in a changed life. So a follower of Christ is a Christian. And so uh, there was a poll done by the Pew Forum, P-E-W. They do surveys all over the place. And this was way back in 2009. They determined... 24% of uh, Americans calling themselves Christians, 24% expressed a belief in reincarnation. That is very disheartening to me. Those people need to go to a better church. One that teaches Hebrews 9.27. Could I uh, offer something parenthetically here? I hope you and I don't take for granted that we're in a church that has a high view of Scripture. It's preached, it's taught, we try to live by it. I'm afraid that just doesn't happen in all churches. we got plenty of imperfections and flaws, but one of the strengths of this church is an abundance of really good Bible teachers. Do you know right now there are 50 iConnect classes meeting? 50, we're just one. We're the best one, but... And then if you've gone to the worship service or will be going, that man, Freeman, is going to preach to you from the Bible. He may share his thoughts, perspectives, and opinions from time to time, which is legitimate. But the uh, core of what he's going to communicate is Scripture because we have a high view of Scripture here. Uh, uh, We should not take that for granted. So... 
Um, 24% of those calling themselves Christians embrace reincarnation. But according to Hebrews 9.27, it's pretty simple here, folks. We, we do not die and live and die and live and die and live. This verse simply says, it is appointed unto men to die once. So I wanted for us to focus on Hebrews 9.27 because it um, has a, a response to this first alternative to it known as reincarnation. Now, here's a second, and perhaps you've heard of it. It's called universalism. And can you see all those symbols around the word? Those are symbols of world's religions because universalism essentially says all roads lead to Rome. You take the high road, I take the low road. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, we all get to the same place. You don't really have to be right because truth is non-absolute in universal. Truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. But, of course, then that flies in the face of the definition of truth. Truth as an axiom essentially implies some things are true and some things ain't. (laughs) There's no such thing as relative truth. If it's relative, it's not truth. Truth is, we're under fire, do not panic. (laughs) Men, women, children, and Jewish Bible teachers go first. (laughs) Keep your seats. Help yourself to the remains of the refreshments. Have a good life. You're going to make it because universalism suggests everyone goes to heaven. Don't worry. You'll get there sooner than the... Okay. No idea what that is, but uh, doesn't sound good, does it? Oh, is that what that is? Oh, that's an Amber Alert? It went off in the church? Or that was someone's phone? Everyone's phone. It just keeps going, David. Wow. Holy Toledo. Well, that's not good. Just a thought, folks. How about the off button on your phone? Do they not come with that? Push the off button. Yes. That's John Capriva. I never liked him. <clears throat> no reason to begin. Yeah. Way to, way to keep a record of past transgressions. I'm really glad you're not God. He cast all our sins behind our back, John. All right. So universalism says it's, it's on the basis of sincerity that you get points with whoever the deity is. Don't worry about truth. That's not important. Any of these religions, you know, just as long as you're sincere, try to be a sincerely good person. So there is no such thing as eternal damnation. Don't fear judgment. There's no such thing. Hell, come on. Hell is contrary to a loving and good God. This is what universalism, and you see this play out all the time at 90% of the funerals you go to, the non-Christian ones. Everyone goes to heaven. I mean that 
reprobate in the casket who's never given a thought to his or her creator, shows no signs of godly inclinations whatsoever, has lived a life of a sin and in darkness, caused trouble for everyone around him, that one's going to heaven. And you hear this a lot uh, uh, in the lives of the rich and famous, particularly from crazy Hollywood people, whenever one of their own passes, good night, everyone. You know, our dear, heaven is sweeter now. Because this creep, uh, you, know, um, you know, they all have a theology. I feel like saying, on what basis have you embraced that theology? Because if we're asked, we can say, on the objective basis of Scripture. Why, 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 where's the propositional truths upon which you base your theology? But there is no such thing. It's just wishful thinking. That's what universalism is. There's no evidentiary basis for it. It's just this wishful thinking that when you die... Because God is good and loving, there is no judgment seat, there is no hell. But they're missing it. Of course God is good and loving. And that's why he's made every uh, preparation for us to avoid hell. Uh, Jesus paid it all. Do you know the Bible says more about hell than heaven? Specifically because God doesn't want us going there. He doesn't want us going to hell. But though he's a loving God, you can't just separate that attribute from the rest. He's also an uncompromisingly holy God. And when his holiness is offended, sin does it, there must be a penalty for it. And because he loves us, instead of us bearing the penalty, somehow he put it on the shoulders of his own son so that If we embrace Jesus by faith, then the penalty due us has been paid for by him. But universalism said, no, all that talk is is crazy. It says God is required out of his love and goodness to allow everyone to have a very pleasant eternal life and, you know, just try to be a good and sincere person. Now, what if you're not? You belong to none of these religious groupings and you haven't been a good person you've been you've been a bad person how are you going to make it well here's the answer a group known as christian universalists have come up with there is that group don't join it here's what christian universalists say because of the totality and uh, completeness of what jesus did in dying on the cross for sin Even if you do not turn to him, even if you do not accept him, still his death on the cross covers your sin. So even if you're a creep, even if you reject Christ, it does not matter. You're going to make it to heaven because he died for all sin and the part of all people, whether you accept him or not. So a few responses to Christian universalism. If that's the case, I wish it was the case, that would be nice. But if that was the case, why does the Bible say so much about putting one's personal faith in Jesus as Savior? It would be unnecessary. Why, in fact, would Jesus have to die at all for crying out loud if God has some blanket way of forgiving everyone? Why did Jesus have to even go through the excruciating execution he experienced? Uh, Also, think about this. If there's someone who has not turned to Jesus but has rejected him, does not have any affinity for him, in fact, has contempt for Jesus and what he promises, 
Don't talk to me about heaven. I don't want to go to heaven. It's a boring place. It'll be all you people there in heaven. I don't want I want to go to a place where there's fun. I don't know if you've heard something like that. Well, based upon Christian universalism, that person's going to heaven whether he likes it or not. So you're going to have heaven populated by a bunch of people who don't want to be there. God's going to drag them there kicking and screaming. Does that make sense to you? It makes no sense to me. God does not impose his will on those of us who's created in his own image. He invites us. He begs us to turn to him. But if one chooses not to, God does not force that one into heaven. That doesn't make any sense. So I think Hebrews 9.27 rules out both reincarnation and universalism. Hebrews 9.27 says, upon death, we all face judgment. But universalism says, no, there's no judgment with God. There's no eternal damnation. There's, no, there's nothing like that. Yeah, but Hebrews 9.27 says there is, after death, we face judgment. So Hebrews 9.27 rules out these two alternatives, it seems to me, with regard to death. One is reincarnation. The second, universalism. And then here's the third and final one. Have you heard of this? Total annihilation or annihilationism. This is the belief that uh, your death brings to an end all there is of you. (laughs) That's it. When you die, nothing lives on. You are completely annihilated. And this point of view was advanced by a number of people, including one named Epicurus. Here's this good-looking guy. Scary dude. Holy moly. Epicurus was an ancient philosopher. He died in 270 B.C. He taught that nobody needs to fear death because we are nothing more than a composition of atoms that simply disperse at the moment of death, making it the end of all things. We're not created in the image of God. We're just a conglomeration of atoms You die, the atoms kind of get absorbed into the universe, and that's the end of you. And so Epicurus, in fact, taught that there are no gods to fear, nor is there anything to face after death, because you don't last beyond your last breath. Your death is the end. To make uh, annihilationism simple, it's this. (laughs) When you die, (laughs) that's all, folks. That's what annihilationism teaches. And so Epicurus taught this. You ought to do all you can now to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain uh, because this life is all there is. That's Epicureanism. In fact, he said... Uh, Thus, that which is the most awful of evils, death, is nothing to us, since when we exist, there is no death, and when there is death, we do not exist. Well, that flies in the face of Hebrews 9.27, which makes clear that upon physical death, we do not have the end of our existence. Again, it says, and inasmuch, as it is appointed for men to die once, 
And after this comes judgment. You have this haunting reality. It's an after this reality. No, uh, death does not lead to your annihilation. There's an after this, after your death, that you have to be prepared for, and so do I. So Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear death is not the end. And that is why death is much more serious than I think some people take it to be. Uh, it's because death is followed by not annihilation. It was followed by judgment, meaning after death, everyone will give an account to the ultimate judge, the creator of the universe and giver of life, God himself. So then beliefs like reincarnation and universalism and annihilationism are perspectives rejected by Hebrews 9.27. But what, by implication, does Hebrews 9 27, what does it recommend? Simple. It kind of implies we ought to be prepared for what inevitably is going to happen later. All of us face the inescapable inevitability of death followed by judgment. And since we do not know when this is going to happen, we should not put off for tomorrow what needs to be settled today. That's the implication of Hebrews 9.27. Death seals one's eternity. There is no second chance. So upon death, there is nothing we nor anyone else can do for us to improve our standing with God nor our situation. Now, there are religious perspectives to the contrary. Some religions suggest that when you die, there are loved ones who remain on who, if they care about you, can kind of act as your proxy. And therefore, they can do various things here to improve you, whatever your situation is there. In fact, there's one practice called baptism for the dead. A major religious group, Mormonism, holds to this based upon a really grotesque misinterpretation of a passage of Scripture but they essentially say you can be baptized for your dead loved ones here and thus ensure uh, their better placement in eternity. And that's why Mormons people keep such extensive genealogical records. Did you know that? If you ever want to do genealogical studies, the Mormon church keeps these records. They're protected um, in a very secure way because you can't really be baptized for the dead if you lose track of who they are. But the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Some people think if you give gifts to your particular church, somehow you can improve the position of a deceased uh, loved one. You like candles for them. You do different things. However, that's not true. Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, meaning nobody, nothing can intervene for you or me between the events of our death and judgment. So the Bible makes it clear that our eternal destiny is determined by what takes place before we die, not after. So what then needs to take place now so as to ensure 
our acquittal in the judgment to come. To answer that question, let me share a story I've done a few times before. So if you've heard this, just, well, you got your phones. <laughs> Here's the story. It tells the truth. There was a one-room schoolhouse in a very rural area in America. They had a very hard time in finding and retaining a teacher for a few reasons. The job didn't pay much. The school's in the middle of nowhere. And for a variety of reasons, the kids were unbelievably undisciplined and unruly. Finally, however, some man, for whatever reason, decides to take the job and relocate to this very rural area so as to be its teacher. And his son was one of the students. His, his son was registered in this one-room schoolhouse. The teacher decided right at the beginning to do something about the misbehavior of the kids. And so he decided to bring it to them, give them ownership into the situation, and said, I want to give you an opportunity to come up with rules which you think we all ought to abide by. And I want you also to come up with the consequence with regard to infraction of the rules. It's entirely up to you. They did this. One of the rules they came up with was this. No one shall steal a lunch. What an odd thing to come up with. Not really. It was a rural school, and kids came from great distances. And so if you didn't have your lunch available because someone stole it, you'd go, you couldn't go home to quickly replace it. You'd be real hungry. So they came up with this rule, no stealing lunches, and the penalty for it was five lashes with kind of a whip-like thing on your back after you removed your jacket. So just on your shirt, the teacher would administer these five lashes. Things were going pretty good for a while, but then all of a sudden, one boy had his lunch stolen. A couple of days later, so too did another. The teacher investigated, and much to his dismay, he found the culprit. It was a little boy named Willie. The teacher was so discouraged by this. Of all people, Willie was perhaps a kid from the poorest family in the area, and as a result, his parents couldn't afford to give him lunch every day. And that's why he stole the lunches of other kids. The poor guy was hungry. But rules are rules. All the students were so upset about this. Of all people, not Willie. They knew about his impoverishment, and they had sympathy for him. But rules are rules. They were, this one was broken, and there's a penalty for breaking the rules. And so uh, the teacher called... Willie forward one day in class, and all the students are there, and he told him to remove his jacket. Well, there was a gasp in the classroom because he had no undershirt, which meant the whip, whip would fall right on his bare skin. He, parents were so poor, he had no undergarment, just a jacket. The kids were absolutely upset about this. And there it happened. The teacher lifted up the whip about to bring down five lashes upon the bare back of Willie, but suddenly a hand shot up in the classroom and a voice cried out. It was the voice of the teacher's own son. He said, if someone went up front and took Willie's place, took his five lashes for him, could Willie go free? That was the question. What was an odd, unusual, surprising question that the teacher had to really think about for a few minutes he did and after reflecting he answered yes if someone was willing to come up front and offer to take Willie's place and if Willie said yes well then he will go free well here goes the teacher's son from the back of the room walking up the aisle to the front and 
said to Willie, Willie, can I take your place? Willie was overwhelmed by this. He could hardly believe what was happening. And, and he said, yes, he accepted the offer. And he put his jacket back on and went back to his seat. And then the teacher whipped his own son right there. The son had done absolutely nothing wrong. It was Willie who broke the rule. He was the guilty party, but he, the guilty one, went free. Can you see who the story is pointing to? God has rules. Uh, At the bare minimum, we call them the Ten Commandments. Though we are diverse, what we have in common is that we've all violated one or more of those Ten Commandments. We've broken them. And God has declared the penalty in advance. The wages of sin is death. We read that. But Jesus, God's own son, stepped up so as to take our place, be our substitute. And the father agreed to the terms. Therefore, on the cross, Jesus, God's guiltless, innocent son, suffered and died so that we, the guilty parties, could, like Willie, go free. But just as Willie had to say yes, so too do we. We have to say yes to God's son have to ask this have you done so i asked myself the same question before coming here today i answered yes it was september 5th 1973 i was in the military barracks someone not long before had told me about god's son and what he did it made sense to me in the privacy of a barracks room i said yes to jesus I kind of ran to him in desperation. I didn't understand heaven and hell and all the things that are part of the Christian life. I understood that I was quite vulnerable. I had violated God's law. I wasn't the worst person in the history of the world, but doesn't the scripture say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, I surely admitted that. And so I accepted the offer of the son to be my sin substitute on the cross. That was September 5th, 1973. And so I, the guilty one, went free. And I've been free of the penalty of sin since September 5th, 1973 because of the totality of what Jesus did. He said, it is finished. It is paid in full. Do you know I don't run back to him for Uh, more forgiveness because he gave me full and total forgiveness 2,000 years ago. It was in advance of all my sin. Father, forgive Stuart. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so what Jesus did provided absolution and forgiveness of sin, all of them, still yet the ones not yet committed by me, none of them were when Jesus died. So I don't run to him for forgiveness anymore. I run to him to thank him for forgiving me when I sin. So I'm not asking you to um, think about anything I haven't subjected myself to. Have you said yes to Jesus? This is so perplexing to me, as big and powerful as God is, and yet he very gently, kind of like a dove, invites us to come to him but doesn't obligate us to. Interesting. He wants us to be coerced, not by his threats or power, but by his love for us. 
to run to him, just as the teacher's son in the fictitious story I presented to you was motivated by nothing but love for Willie, broke Willie's heart. Willie responded, that's the means by which Jesus wants us to come to him. He doesn't want us to come with promises, vows, and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't want us to come displaying an array of of our so-called virtues. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's the basis upon which he wants us to come. Have you run to Jesus? A Christian is not someone who goes to a church. A Christian is not one who's baptized, sings in the choir, and puts money in an offering plate. A Christian is one who said yes to Jesus. All those other things should follow. I understand that. But a Christian is one who has simply said yes to Jesus. I've sinned against you There is a penalty, it's death, spiritual death, physical death. I confess it, I change my direction, I turn from it, I run to you. Forgive me, Lord Jesus, come into my life, change me from the inside out. That's a Christian, not a perfect one, no, 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 no. On the contrary, a very needy, guilty one. Have you run to Jesus? You see... I'm not worried about Hebrews 9.27 personally at all. I know the first part is true of me, and inasmuch as it is appointed for Stuart to die once, I'm not William Randolph Hearst. I can talk about it. It doesn't bother me. I have no fears at all because I understand exactly what will happen. Part B, I'm not worried about. And then after this comes judgment, I'll tell you why I'm not worried about it. I'm going to be in line if there is such a thing with everybody else. It'll be my turn. I come up to the judge's bench. There stands, sits, almighty God. He says to me, it won't happen this way. I'm just kind of imagining it. He'll say something like, on what basis should I grant you entrance into heaven? What is your plea? Well, I say, I'm guilty, but my mother never breastfed me. My father never played Little League Baseball with me. I come from a really dysfunctional family. I'm not as bad as the guy behind me. No, that's not going to work. Just as I am without one plea, but that, this is what I'll say to the father, your son's blood was shed for me. Then the father picks up a gavel, if there is such a thing, and he hits it down, and then he says, case dismissed, go free. You are acquitted of your sins. Enter into eternal bliss. Why? Because the guilty one, me, has run to Jesus, the guiltless one who bore the guilt of my sin for me. Don't make Christianity about uh, the stuff of church. That's the circumference. The core is Christ. A Christian is someone who's centered on Christ, and then you engage in the periphery. Join a church, be baptized, go on missions trip, get involved. I got all that, but the periphery doesn't save you. That means nothing. (laughs) The core is Jesus. Have you run to Jesus? I hope you have, and if not, why not now? You know what the scriptures say? Today is the day of salvation. You know why they say that? Because in no wise do they guarantee tomorrow. We do not know what 
the rest of the day holds for us. It may be your last day or mine. I'm not being arrogant when I tell you I'm fully prepared. I don't have any unfinished business with God. I know exactly what will happen if my life comes to an end in a very surprising way. (laughs) I don't fear it at all. I'm not going to hasten it. We're not allowed to do that. But I've done the things suggested by Hebrews 9.27, prepare now for the inevitability of death which faces each of us. One death for one person. That's how it works. I'm ready, are you? Run, don't walk to Jesus. Run to Jesus while you have the opportunity to do so. Say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. Change me from the inside out. Make me to be someone who lives in a way that pleases you. And one day, whenever my time here is over, take me up in your arms into this place called heaven wherein you and I will have a face-to-face relationship throughout eternity. And, oh, God, I'll need eternity because I have so much to talk to you about. I hope you've made that decision and thus be ready for the judgment which will come. God is a very intensely moral being. He must judge sin. Otherwise, he compromises his morality. You can buy off and bribe judges here on earth, but that cannot be with God who's uncompromising about his laws. Just the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. You have, so have I. Come on. Thou shalt not lie. You have, so have I. That makes you a thief and a liar. Me too. And there's worse stuff. Those are just to demonstrate to us. We don't have a defense apart from the defense offered to us by the one who suffered and died for our sin. Folks, there's no more vital message today than that message in a day when the world is really in an unbelievably uh, discouraging direction. The most important message is Jesus stands ready, just as the teacher's son, to take our place. Will you say yes, please, take my place, forgive my sin, change me from the inside out? Oh, God in heaven, I pray that would be the case. I suppose most in this room have made that decision and run to you, but I can't imagine everyone has. Before I pray, as only you could, that you would impress yourself upon that person about the alienation, separation from you. Then the person may have a knowledge of you, but not a personal relationship. And I pray there be not one person who walks out the doors of this room who isn't absolutely fully prepared for the inevitability of death and judgment to come. I pray there be not one person who doesn't do the logical thing, and that is run to you. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, I accept your offer. Thank you for being my sin's substitute. Come into my life and change me now from the inside out. And I look forward to being with you throughout eternity. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that would be the case with everyone in this room. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, folks, if you're wrestling with this stuff and want to talk, Privately, give me a call.
We'll get together during the week and talk. God bless you all. See you next time.